0: Well, sure. I think if, you know, if you're not, um, if you're not as acquainted with Bruce's music, you, you have a certain picture of what it is. Um, and, and you probably have a mistaken picture of where, where that music is on the political spectrum. Um, you know, obviously the, you know, the people who are pumping their fists at, uh, born in the USA with no freaking conception whatsoever what that song is about. Um, You know, there's a lot of those people out there. Um, And I think it's I think it's you know, I think it's wonderful when somebody who's not familiar sort of peeks a little bit deeper and goes, oh, that's what this is. That's where this is coming from.
1: Welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and joining me tonight as we get away from the Bruce train, though of course we'll cover it, and we get to Gotham City, the Caped Crusader, with frequent guests, soon to be... My permanent (laughs) co-host, Ron Martz, is joining me tonight. How are you doing, Ron?
0: I'm good Jesse, thanks for having me back
1: I am just, I have had so much fun talking to you and um, I I feel one day you're going to tell me to quit stalking you because um, you had tweeted um, about the loss of a a comic book writing icon Danny O'Neill and you said, God I have so many stories to tell and I immediately hit you up oh, do you want to tell them on my podcast? do you want to tell them on my podcast? Um, and so you're kind enough to say yes so thank you for
0: that Um, Sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, unfortunately I think we, you know, we end up telling those stories after someone has passed. Um, not when they're still with us and still vital and, and when they can enjoy it. Um, but I, I suppose that's, um, I suppose that's human nature. Um, but you know, I think because Denny was fairly private, um, the news of his, his passing last week kind of blindsided everybody.
1: Yeah, so just in case someone this is their first episode, um, tell a little bit about yourself. Just give your introduction, give your little elevator pitch, and then let's talk a little bit about the man we're discussing.
0: Uh, well, I uh, I am Ron Mars. I've been writing comics for thirty years now. I like to tell people I haven't had a real job in thirty years, um, and I, I aim to keep it that way for as long as possible. Uh, and I've written, you know, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer. Thor, Superboy, Star Wars, Conan, Witchblade, um, a whole range of stuff for Marvel and DC, uh, Dark Horse, Image, um, IDW, uh, virtually every uh, every domestic publisher. Um, I am the current editor in chief and lead writer at Ominous Press, uh, which is a publishing concern that I'm a partner in. Um, that's that's my uh, that's my short bio, and I, you know, I discovered Bruce in college and have been in uh, have been a supplicant ever since.
1: A- absolutely. Um, I so we got to start with, and we mentioned a little bit this before I hit record, but um, you have been like the rest of us, um, queued in on Wednesday mornings when Bruce takes us into his um, record vault and. Sh- spout stories um what is your thoughts about this this portrait of himself and his musical um kind of his history and what his feelings are what what have you been thinking about these shows
0: um well i mean initially i was just thrilled that he was doing the shows period because um any chance to to have a connection uh with bruce with the rest of the fandom uh, particularly now is is terrific. Um, I think, uh, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, when when everybody was was so locked down and so um, uh, so isolated from um, anybody that wasn't in your house, um, everybody was looking for uh, some ways to make a connection. And I think um, having Bruce do this show every other week. Um, playing not only his music, but a a lot of other music as well, um, allowed the community to feel connected um, in a way that I don't think you feel connected uh, quite as much when you're just listening to E Street Radio or, or, you know, uh, listening to your iTunes. I think there's a, there's a communal aspect to knowing that everybody else is doing the same thing that you're doing at the same time um that is attractive to us as humans um there's i think that's why we still want to go to the movie theater and have that communal experience rather than experiencing the same content on your large screen tv at home that's attractive as well but it's it's attractive in a different way so i think um the the fact that we can listen to bruce do this and be listening to it all together um it means means more than just listening to the music
1: I agree, and I also think it. It. I don't know how long, but it. It. It at least appears to me he's doing some work on this. He is thinking about what message he wants to give and what the story he wants to share, and not only writing the, uh, the text between. Uh, which, it, it does not sound scripted. It sounds like it's coming from his heart. But so did, um, you know, Springsteen on Broadway. Um, and then also the, the diverse amount of music he's picking um, is... it is. I knew, and, and we talked about this, we knew he was a great storyteller, you know, because on his songs. And you've talked about how that's influenced your writing. But I'm... I am pleasantly surprised that he is using a different avenue to tell a story. It's almost like, oh, we found out he's a great painter, too. Like, oh, not only are you a great songwriter and singer, but you also have the ability to weave stories and and, and other people's songs to spin a narrative.
0: Sure. Well, I I fully expected um – Bruce to be able to, you know, weave a narrative through his own stuff. Um and, and I, I guess honestly, um I expected him to be able to weave a narrative through anybody's stuff because he's a storyteller. I think he's, right. you know, to a great extent one of the great American storytellers in any medium. Um music, novel, film, TV, whatever. He is he is telling stories. Um and obviously we we see that With the Broadway show, we see that with uh, with last year's film, Um, the the medium is malleable. Uh, He doesn't have to just sing you a song. Um, But I think that you know it was a bit of a revelation the the breadth and depth of the music that he's playing um, every other Wednesday, and the way that he uses them to speak to uh, our current reality, uh, both um, both the pandemic and um, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that has um, sort of dovetailed with with dealing with the pandemic, um, as if you know, as if this nation needed more to deal with on its plate at the same time, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, the last few shows, I found that he is moving gracefully between those two threads. Um, he is moving gracefully between two, frankly, American tragedies, um, and and his certainly his music, you know, forty one shots obviously speaks to that that situation specifically, um, and his music also speaks to the isolation that I think we're all feeling um, still. Um, and the, the sort of uncertainty and even fear that this whole thing is engendering. Um, so um, you you want the art that you consume to reflect your experiences, and this is a very immediate way that that's happening.
1: You know, it's interesting, Ron. A um, couple points that um, last night, as we're recording this, I had a um, a a guest on that who was a huge nirvana fan um he talked about um he grew up listening to nirvana uh, got him through his own heroin addiction and he has now been clean and he has gone into counseling and helping young people and um he's recently written kind of a horror substance abuse novel and so we were talking about this and and at the very end he said hey do you mind if I ask you a question? I go, of course not. he goes, do, do you know this song, 41 Shots American Skin? And I said, yes. He says, I had never heard it before, and I just recently, someone played it for me, and I'm, I'm in awe of how powerful the song is. He says, I, I don't really have a question about it, I just wanted to know, you know, are you aware of it? And so we spent a few minutes talking about that. And, um. You know, as Springsteen fans, of course we're aware of that song and we're aware of um, the the power of it. Um, and it was just kind of interesting to hear someone from outside the fold just recently finding that song.
0: Well, sure. I think if you know if you're not um, if you're not as acquainted with Bruce's music, you you have a certain picture of what it is, um, and and you probably have a mistaken picture of where where that music is on the political spectrum. Yes, Um, You know, obviously the, you know, the people who are pumping their fists at, uh, born in the USA with no freaking conception whatsoever. What that song is about. Um, you know, there's a lot of those people out there. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's wonderful when somebody who's not familiar sort of peeks a little bit deeper and goes, Oh, that's what this is. That's where this is coming from.
1: I did. And, you know, I um, some of my fellow fans uh, and I'm sure you saw, too, that when the first people were starting to protest about let us out of our social isolation and we shouldn't have to wear masks and they were marching to Born in the USA and we're like, you just are missing the point of that song. Totally.
0: Yeah. So 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 shocker. People who refuse to wear masks aren't that bright.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, and we heard um, uh, Bruce tell uh, the our president, our commander in chief, they put on an effing mask. And, uh, I, I think that was genius and wonderful. And
0: um, yeah, obviously, I, I listened to that live the other morning, and thought, yep. well, that'll that'll make some news, and and good for him. Uh, you know. It, look somebody somebody needs to say it as bluntly as that um, we yeah. have a we have a toddler in the White House um, yeah. and his decisions and his lack of um, his lack of interest in dealing with this is literally getting people killed
1: um, yes um, the I was just listening to Gillette's podcast and he was saying that... No matter whatever president, pick whoever you want, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. That if this had been happening, anyone else had been in the White House, there would have been a steady. We need to take care of this. We need to do these smart things, and there would have been a nation, a national address about, you know, we need to be smart and we need to take care of ourselves. And instead, um, you know, we're getting this, in. Um, Today it broke that um, Adam Aaron, the a- AMC theater CEO, well, I'm not going to require people to wear masks because I don't want to be drawn into political controversy. Th- this isn't a political controversy. It's it's uh, well, I'm not going to make my employees wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. It, I mean, it's that simple.
0: Yeah, this this isn't political. This is you know, look, CDC says wear a mask, and and frankly. Even if we weren't sure that wearing a mask helped, wear the damn mask anyway. Absolutely. Right? It's, 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 uh, I, you know, I live in New York State, so we've got a, we've had a much different experience than a lot of other places in the country because they got out in front of it as, as early as they could, realizing that obviously New York City, Long Island, uh, and the, the, you know, the suburbs just north of the city were going to be, um, a wildfire with this because yes. people are so densely packed and everybody's on mass transit. And, you know, it's, it's really the worst place in the country for this to, for this to spread. Um, so we've been dealing with this for a long time and taking it seriously for a very long time um, where, you know, and, and it, from all indications, the pandemic arrived via, you know, flights from Europe where it was already spreading into JFK and and into Newark Airport, which are two big, huge international hubs, um, you know, it's 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 like trying to find a leak in your pipes. It just yeah. it's just going to go everywhere. So um, so obviously, my experience with this is is much different um, because it was very real, very quick here. Yes, uh, it was it was. Um, I mean, I, the spring here was just a, a really odd time. There was nowhere to go. There was nothing to do. And, and in my day to day life it wasn't terribly different because um you know i I sit in a room by myself and make up things uh, right. seven days a week so it wasn't like um it wasn't like there was a huge change in my life other than well i can 't go down to the gym you know for an hour every day um, beyond that things didn't really change that much um, mm-hmm. but for a lot of people, obviously it was a very you know it was a very very abrupt change to how they were living their lives. And I don't think that abrupt change um, spread to the rest of the country very quickly.
1: Yeah, I think so. We talked a little bit, you know, I live in Texas. Uh, We've opened up. I've been back in the office now for three weeks. We are trying to be very um, safe about it. My office manager, um, has a thermometer, you know, one of those laser lights that, you know, you from a distance she shines a little red beam on and checks our temperature and everyone's temperature is checked. Uh, we were lucky enough, we have a huge uh, space and so um, even though it's a contact center uh, we have, you know, three or four desk cubicles separating everyone. Um, you know, we're Um, still doing teleconferencing. And if we are in a conference room, uh, you know, we're sitting three or four chairs between us to try to be as smart as we can.
0: Yeah. You just, you know, you look, we got caught with our pants down. Obviously Um, we didn't do the things that we should have done in January and February that would have mitigated at least some of this and made, um, made this much, you know, much less unpleasant than it is. Um, But, those are the cards we were dealt. So, you yes. know, so I think at this point what you do is, is adjust. Look, I mean, I, I'm used to traveling to conventions and, and mm-hmm. being able to be in different cities and meet different people and, you know, go, um, go to international locations. Uh, you know, I miss all of that terribly, Yeah. but that's just the way it is. Yeah. My... Um, that's, that's, that's life. And you, and you deal with it. And, and life is also wear a mask and stay six feet apart. That's just the way it is. And and frankly, the people that are out there screaming that they're, you know, that their rights are being um you know, their rights are being offended by having to wear a mask, um God, just you know, don't be a baby. Exactly. Just, you know, Absolutely. Do it, do it for, you know, do it for, you know, Uncle Charlie who's eighty. Yes. And maybe it maybe maybe you're not gonna get a bad dose but maybe it's going to kill him. And, and
1: um, so well said, so well said. Um, so, y- yes, I, 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 am. it has now become kind of a highlight every couple of weeks. Um, you know, it sounded like he was going to do something a little lighter this week and decided not to, so I think we have, um, you know, a – it depends on his mood, but there is the chance he could do a more summer-themed and exploring – um, it is, it, it has just been interesting to hear him talk about him missing baseball and, and how his, you know, his children aren't coming to see him cause they don't want to kill him and Patty. And, um, did you happen to watch, uh, the dropkick Murphys and him perform at least a couple of songs?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I watched, you know, I watched a bit of that too. And, and look, it's a very odd, it's an odd thing, right? It was um, odd. Bruce is performing with them, but, you know, he's, he's like 800 miles away or whatever. And, and, you know, and none of us are used to seeing Fenway park empty. Um, yes. uh, look, none of us are going to be used to seeing major league stadiums empty if they can get this deal together and get, get games back on. Yes. Uh, uh we are, you know, we have entered a, uh, we have entered a new phase of how we're going to live our lives for at least, at least a while. Um, and i think the the faster that we come to that realization the better off we are
1: i, um, I think you're well said i i look forward to um you know I, as we continue i hope everyone is as safe as possible as wise as possible and those of them that are showing their behinds you know i hope someone is able to at least symbolically you know, slap across the head and go, "Look, jackass! You know, this is this is for everyone's good."
0: Yeah, and and as you know, as I said before, you hit record. It, it's not like there's very much being asked of us. You know, exactly. stay home, stay six feet apart, and put on a mask if you go out in public. Yeah. I mean, this this is this is not like uh, there are food shortages or or we all got to cut off our left pinky to you know yeah. to uh, to to appease our samurai lord. Um, this is. This is not a big deal. This is this is the the bare minimum that we can sort of, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and do together. But I think we live in such a, a divisive time where everybody yes. gets to kind of pick their own reality um, that we can't even agree on the fact that, um, hey, maybe if I wear a mask, I keep you safe and you wear a mask and you keep me safe and we're all better off for it.
1: Well said. Well said, sir. All right, so um, thank you for that. Um, I did want – we are here to talk about – so I, I pulled this uh, from Wikipedia because you know it's never wrong. But um, <laughs> So I'm going to say this, and then I'd like you to share in your thoughts um, who Denny O'Neill was. But on course, Wikipedia, Dennis J. O'Neill, also known as Denny O'Neill. May 3rd, 1939, June 11th, 2020, was an American comic book writer and editor, principally for Marvel Comics and DC Comics from the 1960s through the 1990s, and group editor for the Batman family of titles until his retirement. Um, That's um, pretty impressive on its own, but I think that barely scratches the surface.
0: Well, um, you know, Denny is to, for me was sort of the Dean of, of comic book writers. You know, if he was the Dean of living comic book writers, I don't know that, you know, would you say he was the best living comic book writer? I think that's a personal choice, but I think he was, he was the guy on the top of the mountain in terms of, you know, having been there and done that and, um, evolved with comics from the sixties into the, you know, into this year. I mean, frankly, I have a um, I have a Green Lantern story in the Green Lantern 80th anniversary special uh, that comes out next week, next Tuesday, um, and the story that precedes it is Denny's last story. Uh, it's Denny's it's Denny's um, Green Lantern story uh, with Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen, drawn by Mike Grell. So, um, you know, I certainly didn't know that I was going to be in the book uh, that that is going to contain Denny's last story, and it's a really it's a really beautiful um, story. Uh, I don't think anybody knew that it was going to be his epitaph story, but um, if it if it has to be, I'm glad it's that story because uh, it's a really nicely done um, story from the from the guy who um, who made Green Lantern and Green Arrow um, the socially relevant. Comic of the nineteen early nineteen seventies, where they dealt with racism and drug use and everything that was that was in the zeitgeist then, and and really it was the kind of stuff that you didn't deal with in comics at all, and and certainly you didn't deal with them in DC comics, which were always sort of much you know much cleaner um, and and sort of more more kid friendly Silver Age comics um, than the Marvel stuff. But, you know, Denny's run on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, starting with issue 76, I believe, um, was, uh, was kind of an earthquake in the business because those subjects were, were taboo previously. So, um, I mean, I guess the, the, you know, the easy thing to say is that Denny brought relevancy into comics, but, um, you know, that, that's probably, um, That's probably too simple a way to put it, but certainly Denny made everybody sit up and take notice that they were doing that. And those stories were specifically about that. Um, they weren't, they weren't, you know, side notes in the stories that, oh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a heroin epidemic in the country. Um, that's what that story was about. Um, it, it took those things on in a very, um, in a very, uh, Head-on way, and certainly having you know having one of the all-time brilliant artists in Neil Adams um, illustrate them, uh, you know those comics, uh, those comics will be read long after you and I are gone, much less Danny.
1: Yeah, I you know in the you know the premise right is that Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen, which are Green Lantern and Green Arrow, go out to quote simon and garfunkel to find america or also you know and and this was this uh, it, and it was this this all this road trip issues and in dealing with the real world and um they were they weren't preachy though there certainly was heavy themes it still was a good comic book and it was a good story um and it was you know it, it was an emotional story
0: yeah, I mean, Denny was you know Denny was a brilliant writer and a brilliant editor because he understood the craft of writing um, in in large and small ways. Uh, he was he was an editor that I did some work for. Um, he was a, you know, sort of one of the triumvirate of of d c Uber editors um, when I did a lot of my work at d c. Um, it was Denny uh, doing the Batman books. Mike Carlin doing the Superman books and Archie Goodwin doing a bunch of the other books. Um and but the three of them were sort of the 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 DC hive mind and and you know all three of those guys are brilliant editors. Um and now you know sadly two out of the three are gone. Archie died a number of years ago from from cancer. Um but um yeah Denny was you know my interactions with Denny were um were always you know, always pleasant because he didn't seem to know he was Denny O'Neill. He was just, you know, he treated you as an equal and he treated you as another creator and another craftsman. Um, and you know, any, any time I, you know, I had reason to interact professionally with Denny. Um, he just treated me like I was walking on the same plane as he was, even though very few of us ever walked on the same plane as Denny, as Denny. Um, uh, one of the one of the stories that that I've I've told is that one of the times that I I had to um, sit down and have a meeting with Benny is when Bernie Wrightson and I were going to do uh, the Batman Aliens crossover between DC and Dark Horse uh, in the uh, mid to late nineties, I guess sort of later nineties, um, and um, it was being handled editorially at Dark Horse, but obviously we needed the the blessing and the input of the Batman office, um, and Denny being the Batman office, um, we had to have Denny's blessing. Um, the the project was approved, but we had to you know go through the story with him and make sure that everything was uh, was was copacetic with him. And so, um, you know, Bernie and I both lived in upstate New York at the time, so uh, I believe Bernie drove in that day. So we hopped in the car and. Drove into New York and and went up to the DC offices, um, met met up with Denny and he said let's go to lunch and whenever Denny said go to lunch, um, that meant going to Denny's favorite Indian restaurant, um, which was totally cool with me because I love Indian food. Uh, so we so we went to this Indian restaurant. And we got there a little later in the afternoon, and um, so it was fairly deserted. And we sat at a we sat at a round table and just. You know, frankly, just kind of shot the shit for an hour or two and didn't really talk about the story to great extent. And I started to get nervous and I'm thinking, man, is he is he you know, is he just working up the working up the nerve to say, you know, this thing's not going to work out. You're both fired. Um, So the the, so the whole meal goes on and we have you know, we have dessert and uh, Indian tea. And finally, when the bill comes, and Denny takes the bill because he's, you know, he's putting it on DC's account, he goes, "Oh, yeah, I guess, I guess we got to talk about this Batman Aliens project. Um, yeah, you guys know what you're doing, so I guess go have fun."
1: <laughs>
0: oh, that's that's great. Uh, that, so obviously, there's, yeah. a, you know, there's a there's a sigh of relief that comes with that. Right. Because oh okay, our you know, our project's our project's safe and we're we can do what we need to do. But also just the fact that that the Denny O'Neill is kind of like, ah, you're fine. You're you know, you, you you've passed the test, you've passed muster. Um that's that's kind of a big deal thing. Uh and you you know you want to play it off as as oh this is you know this is this is just us cool comics professionals hanging out together, but um, you know Denny's opinion obviously carried quite a bit of weight, uh, uh, and if you as a writer uh, in particular sort of got Denny's stamp of approval, um, it meant something.
1: Yeah, and and for those of you who are not um, big comic fans um, that are listening to this, just because you're. It's the Bruce podcast and you're a wonderful listener um, there was a there was a time when um, because of the comic book uh, because of the TV show uh, Batman had gotten very campy and for the work of another word cartoonish um, and in the book and um, Denny is I guess one of the people that, um, when he took over, right, decided to have Batman go back to his roots. Is that a fair summary?
0: Um, yeah, well, you know, Batman is certainly um, one of the most malleable characters in comics. Um, and even Superman, to great extent, is that these are characters who are literary icons now. Um, yes. They're not just comic book characters and they've, and they've been through so many iterations over the last 80 years um, that it's um, it's really kind of uh, um, there's a flexibility to the character. So, you know, Batman, when initially introduced in 1939, you know, had a had a gun and was, you know, and was knocking off bad guys because they needed killing Um you know, Batman and then Batman by the, you know, late 40s into the early 50s, they they introduce Robin because they want to give him a, uh, you know, a partner who's a kid so that kids will be more prone to reading the book. And, you know, and in the 50s, Batman kind of turns into this Boy Scout. He's, you know, right. he's the smiling scout leader. And those stories are great, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in the '60s, the TV show, but in the mid '60s, the TV show become, becomes a national sensation, and obviously the comic reflects the kind of stories they're doing in the in the TV show, sort of big pop art kind of goofy stories with with these larger than life villains, and that lasted a while. Um, and then when the TV show went away, um, Batman kind of floundered; they didn't quite know what to do with Batman um and in the 70s in the early 70s is when denny came in uh as the writer with neil adams as the artist and turned batman back into the dark knight turned him back into um this uh sort of kind of grim avenger um of uh, uh of the night and um really sort of paved the way for the for the batman that that we know the Batman, you know, in the first Tim Burton movie, um, all of that stuff, you can trace back to Denny and Neil doing their almost Gothic version of Batman. Yes. Uh, in, in the book in the early seventies. Um, it was, it was reinvention on a, on a large scale really. And it really, and obviously it really worked. Batman turned back into, um, uh, this, more uh, grim, serious character, and very, very much a contrast. More of a contrast to Superman than he'd been in a long time. Um, and I think without those 1970s comics that Denny wrote, you would have never had Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One by Frank Miller in the 80s, which really kind of paved the way for um, for the public to understand Batman as this um, as this darker more serious character rather than the campy Adam yes. West version from the TV series which is which is also a great version i mean I, I grew up watching reruns of that show and and love it dearly and still love it dearly um, but that's not the that's not the most common take on Batman uh, certainly since since the you know since Denny did what he did with Neil and then, you know, and then Frank Miller in the eighties, um, we, we as a society have sort of embraced this much, much darker, more grim Batman. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, for, for people who aren't maybe old enough to have been around when that first Tim Burton movie came out in 89, um, that was a huge, huge risk because everybody's idea of Batman in the general public at that point was Adam West, was the, was the campy TV series. So to portray Batman as this serious character, all the, all the comic fans knew what Batman was like, but the general public did not. And, and thankfully the general public is the one that really um, embraced this new, the, you know, this real dark night version of Batman.
1: Yeah. I, I remember that I was, um I, I was like 29, I guess in June of 89, I would have turned 30. Um, I was working in a new job at the time. It was, um, I was doing customer service work and we were really busy. So we were working, at, they had unlimited overtime. So like I would come in to work at 9 in the morning and work till, you know, 11 at night. And um, I told them, well, and my normal shift was 3 in the afternoon till 11 at night. And I said, now, you know, When Batman comes out, I'm not coming in early. I've got to go see that. And I remember all the hype about Beetlejuice as Batman. Oh, my God. How is this going to work? And um, the the joy of seeing how good that movie was um, and how... They took this so seriously. And I'm like you. I, 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 um, I, I regret strongly that I, I only met Adam West once. Um, he was at a smaller comic book show um, in Dallas, and I got to spend a few minutes talking to him, um, and he was... He was charming, and he was just—he was Adam West, and it was like this. There's Batman; he's right there. Um, and I still love that TV show, um, but there was something about, oh my God, this is a serious movie. Um, and you know, now that it's gone even further with Nolan <laughs> and 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 all the other, the way that they've taken the character. Um, well,
0: yeah, I mean, in in an odd way, I think I think um, Batman has become. You know, the American James Bond, uh, there's yes. there, we're going to have Batman movies every, you know, th- three, four five years for the rest of our lives, um, just like we're going to have James Bond movies for the rest of our lives every, you know, every three, four five years. And the and the tie there is that I guess at one point Adam West was considered for the uh, the James Bond role after Connery left.
1: How interesting.
0: Um, you know, and you, you know, you can see it. He certainly got the suave part down. And ultimately they decided um that that he was not he was not the right fit. Um and I I would assume at that at that juncture is when uh George Lazenby got um got the role for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um but you know there's a there's a weird, you know, James Bond Batman uh Uh, crossover in the Venn diagram right there.
1: And if I remember correct, I'm looking up in IMDb right now. Um, Was it Hooper with Burt Reynolds playing the stuntman? And I believe Adam West played the lead. Uh, He was the star that Burt Reynolds was doing stunt doubles for. Um, I, yes, I just checked that. So, and he was playing kind of that, a James Bond type character, whatever the movie in the movie was about. So yes, absolutely. Do, um, I, we, I talked a little bit, I just ended up, um, taking time to watch Batman and Bill, the documentary all about Bill Finger and fascinating story, uh, from my perspective as a casual fan Um, because I did not know a lot of this, and and, um, the whole search for justice. I do know, personally, like Mark Avenir has always talked about, there's the the Bill Finger Award that's given out at Comic-Con, so I was kind of familiar with it, the documentary filled it up more. Um, But you certainly could make the discussion, that the argument that if you're listing the top three to five creative people that have influenced – the Batman persona, Daniel Neal's in that discussion.
0: Oh yeah, he's absolutely in the, in the top five. I think you, you know, you have to, um, you have to, you have to include Bob Kane. Um, obviously there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. Uh, but, you know, Bob Kane was one of the creators. Bill Finger was the other one. Um, I think you have to include Frank Miller, obviously for his reinventions uh, in the eighties, which paved, the way for so much of what we have now. And I, and I think you really have to uh, include uh, Denny and Neil Adams, the guys who, yeah. who made the dark night dark again um, in the, in the seventies. Um, you know, you look, you look back at Denny's career and um, certainly the highlights are, you know, Batman, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow; those are the kind of the twin pillars, I think. But there's also so much good material. You know, his his series um, in the 80s into the 90s of the Question at DC, the old Steve Ditko character, um, I think is probably some of Denny's best work. And and the real you know the real hardcore comics people know that. But I think um, I think hopefully some of those some of those uh, stories will work their way back into print and that was just some really brilliant stuff that Denny was doing um, with a character that was um, that was really a Steve Ditko character Steve Ditko, the co-creator of Spider-Man with Stan Lee um, Steve Ditko who was a sort of a Randian believer in that sort of philosophy so um, Ditko being a very odd choice for somebody to be making superheroes um you know to be making superheroes who uh did what they did for someone else i mean that's not sort of the ayn rand philosophy the to me randian philosophy is is i've got mine go screw yeah um, and and for and ditko was really that's the way he lived his life not that he was a mean or cruel man or anything like that, but he his his world was very black and white and you didn't um you know uh, you 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 didn't owe any anything to anybody else um very rugged individualist if you want to look at it that way um so here's this character that you know that 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 comes from ditko um and Denny obviously being Um, being a child of the 60s who grew up, you know, protesting the war. And, you know, up until the end of his life, Denny had a had a peace button on his on his lapel all the time. Um, He he believed that he you know, he talked that talk and walked that walk uh, in his professional and personal life. Um, So for Denny to take this this very black and white character of the question and and have such a successful series with it when, you know, the, his philosophy uh, of life is probably the antithesis of what the question was, um, was created with. Uh, But to have it work so well, you know, you just, you you sort of sit back and you marvel at, um, at Denny's ability to make those stories, um, uh, to make those stories work as well as they did. um, And to, to make them work for, kind of writer that that Denny was he didn't bastardize the concept but he um, he approached the question with questions well and and, the question had to wrestle with uh, his own internal uh, his own internal demons and his own internal motivations
1: yeah and uh, you just made my partner uh, my podcast partner uh, in my doctor who podcast Charles Skaggs because uh, we were talking um, we're also doing a um, on the Phantom Zone podcast we were covering Stargirl every week we were discussing the new CW and the um, that series and the JSA and all that's involved and I mentioned that we, I was going to have you on and he first person he says and he says well make sure that you guys give some love to the question because i love that series i think that's one of the best things he did so you just made charles very happy um
0: well it's it you know i don't think it was ever a series that was a huge sales success but man you know the people that love it love it um and um denny working with dennis Callan on that series was just um just a, a terrific pairing. I mean, and I've, I know I've said this before, and I probably even said it on, on this show that, you know, as a comics writer, you are only as good as the artist you're working with. Yes. Um, your story is only as good as who is drawing it. So, um, Denny obviously was, you know, he was no dummy. He made sure he worked with the best artist he could as well.
1: And, and I think there's there's also the beauty of not only him as a writer, but the editor. And you've already shared a little bit, but he he was influential in getting people to tell stories and helping other people to succeed, um, you know, created a couple of iconic villains that have been in films and have been on Legends of Tomorrow. You know, and they he yeah, stuff, um, you know, a very um, big shadow. He certainly cast.
0: Yeah, well, but Denny, Denny, very much like, um, our, you know, the late great Archie Goodwin, as well. Um, they were not editors who wanted you to tell their story. You know, sometimes in comics, you work for an editor who, who wants you to do what they want you to do. Yes, uh, they want you to to, uh, to you know dance to the tune that they're calling and look sometimes that's the gig you, you are you know you are working with with um, iconic characters that are that are owned by another entity and you have to play with them properly um, yeah
1: but like, uh, let me interrupt you just for a moment like like if if you get a job work in we're going to mix metaphors here but if you get hired in a TV room being run by Aaron Sorkin you understand that you are going to dance to his music that he is going to do the majority of the writing because that's the kind of brilliance and and I love Aaron Sorkin but that's the kind of room and that's what he's going to put out right versus it sounds like Danny O'Neill is um, I want you to tell a good story and I'm here to help you
0: Denny was, you know, Denny was any time that I um, that I worked with Denny, uh, he wanted you to tell your story and he felt like his role was to help you tell your story better. Um, He was not um, he was not terribly uh, insistent on do this. You know, he wasn't going to give you a checklist of how to approach your work. Um, he was going to help bump you back into the middle of the road if you were straying, and he was going to call out things that that could be done better. But he never expected you to do them the way Denny O'Neill would do them, um, which is which is honestly a pretty rare gift um, in an editor, uh, especially an editor with with the kind of chops and the kind of resume that Denny had. It would be very easy as an editor to, you know, to lean back and say, well, here's what I would do and make your creative team do that. But Denny did not do that. That was not his approach to to making these books. And I have to think that that was because he had obviously worked the other side of the street. You know, he had he had been and was still, uh, you know, a freelance writer as well. And, you know, you you don't like as a freelance writer, you don't like when you're forced to do something. You don't like being given your marching orders if you if you fervently disagree with them. Um, You you want to uh, be collaborative and tell the story that everybody wants to be told, but you want to do it in your own way. And any time that I dealt with Denny, Denny on a story, that's always the way it worked um he would he would nip and tuck things here and there if he felt like he needed to but he would generally let you do your job and then he would do his job to make sure that the story was was something that um that he was comfortable with
1: so ron um you mentioned earlier that um you know part of your gig is going to conventions i was able to meet Denny a couple times at conventions uh, at Dragon Con one the other he always had a huge booth a um, steady stream of people coming up to see him um, you know buying his books buying his art um, you know getting books signed Um, any stories from the road that you might want to share with us
0: well Denny um, Denny you know in his later years Denny did a few more shows um than uh than previous like once he retired from dc once he you know left staff in terms of being a, a day-to-day editor he had a little bit more freedom to go and you know do shows and stuff like that because look you're if you're a staff editor at dc comics you you need to be in the office you need sure. to be doing the job you can't be going to um you know you can't be on every convention every weekend just because you happen to be danny o'neill um and I, certainly in, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there were less conventions to go to. Um, so I would, you know, I would run into Denny at conventions. Uh, I remember one South Carolina con. We, you know, we both kind of we both got off the you know, we, we were on the same plane. Um, I think we had, you know, we had quite a connection uh, together somewhere. And, you know, we ended up getting off the same plane and going to the baggage claim and um, independent of knowing each other was on the plane. And then, you know, we end up at baggage claim standing there next to each other and just look at each other and go, Oh, (laughs) Um, I think, but I think, you know, the story that I will remember Denny best for is that um, one of the last conventions he did, I think uh, was right here in Albany, New York. And um, he took the train up. uh, He took the train up from um, downstate, And, you know, Albany is my is my is the closest city to me. It's not my hometown, but it's the closest town to where I live now. And um, so, you know, it was a I think it was a three day show or, you know, ultimately it's a two and a half day show because the show starts four o'clock Friday afternoon or whatever. Um, And, you know, Denny was there and, you know, I was there and Carl Potts was there with him to kind of help him get set up and um it was not a terribly busy show it, you know it was fine but we had time to chat which is always nice uh if if a you know if a show is really busy and you've got a line in front of you all the time that's great but it it certainly lessens the the social aspect of you know who's at the table to either side of you and you can kind of catch up because conventions tend to be you know tend to be like uh, like old home week uh, to a, to a certain extent because sure. you see people that you only see at conventions um, so this this convention in the spring of last year um, uh, I was fortunate enough to be a guest at with Denny and we you know we kind of got to to chat quite a bit and um, and one thing in particular we, we, we ended up talking about when they offered, me the the monthly writing duties on Green Lantern and when I wrote Green Lantern my marching orders um, when I took over the book were to um, get rid of Hal Jordan is the main character and create a new Green Lantern um, and that storyline ended up becoming called Emerald Twilight and was and was somewhat infamous at the time um, and there was a lot of a lot of controversy over it, and ultimately I think we you know we we were successful in introducing a new Green Lantern who is still in the DC universe and uh, had a had a good run for quite a few years as the as the lead character in the book. Um, one of the editors who was in the room when I got a phone call one night to uh, offer me the book was Denny O'Neill, and it was it was Denny. It was Archie Goodwin, it was Mike Carlin, it was the Green Lantern editor Kevin Dooley, and it was Paul Levitz, the publisher. Wow. Um, it doesn't it doesn't get any, you know, in terms of the people in the room to uh, talk to you about your work, it doesn't get any bigger than that. Yeah. So when I got on the phone and they introduced who was on the phone, I really thought because I didn't know this call was coming. This was not like a you know, uh, this was not something that had had been set up. I got a call. I had actually been down at Marvel's offices for most of the day and got a call that evening. Um, And that's, who was on the phone. And I thought, Oh shit, you know, (laughs) you know, when those people are on the phone with you, things are either really good or really bad. Yes. Uh, And it, and it turned out that they were really good that I was getting, you know, I was getting the offer to, to write the monthly green lantern book and do this, do this kind of big deal (laughs) storyline. And and ultimately, um, uh, Archie actually did most of the talking because Archie was the nicest man in the world and he was the one who explained things the best. Um, but, you, you know, but knowing that that Denny was not on the call and Denny being, frankly, the most famous Green Lantern writer ever um, and and really the guy who was most associated with Hal Jordan. And then they tell me what they want me to do with Hal Jordan. I'm like, oh, no, what is, you know, what must be going through Denny's mind? Um, So, you know, years went by and we never discussed it um, until this convention last year. And um, and Denny brought it up. Denny said, you know, I you know, it was it was it was an interesting it was an interesting time. And and I'm glad that it was you that did. That storyline, I thought you, I thought you understood Hal's character um, really well, and you, you know, you you did, um, you did a good job of portraying him sort of coming apart at the seams. And man, I was just, I was walking on air for a week because, you know, Denny O'Neill, the Hal Jordan guy, tells you you did okay by by Hal. Um, that's that carries a lot of weight. That's a big deal.
1: Yeah, that one you take, that one you put in your pocket, and you go, okay, yeah, that that's a win. That's no matter how you slice it, forget all the financial benefits. That's a you go home going, all right, I got that in my column.
0: Yeah, I mean, we you know, so we were having this discussion at Denny's table, and then they came and got us for a panel, and we I remember you know very distinctly continuing this discussion. in the elevator that they took us down to the, to the, uh, to the first floor of this convention center. So we could go to the panel and we ended up having, um, having the discussion sort of backstage and the curtains behind the, behind the panel. And, you know, so Denny selling, t- telling me these, you know, sort of secrets of that day that I've never heard and how they came to the decision to call me. And then the, the call and everything, um, And then we had to go on stage. Like then the panel went off, and we, you know, we got introduced one by one. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go on stage and do a panel. I just want to sit here and have Denny (laughs)
2: Denny
0: talk to me. Yes. But uh, but we had to go. You know, we had to go do this hour and a half panel. And um, and then I think you know we ended up. uh, It was sort of towards the end of the show, and uh, we just went back to our tables and packed up and left for the day. But man, it's it's. uh, I'm so glad that. I had that chance to sort of spend some real, r- real quality time with Denny because you don't often get a chance to do that, uh, particularly at a show, or even if you're, you know, having a meeting. Uh, when Denny was on staff, there's there's always something else going on. So, um, to have that opportunity to um, kind of just sit there and, and bask in Denny's glow for a while um, is is a very special memory for me
1: that I like that that's that's a great story and and I can imagine um you know we just talked about at the very beginning of this that unfortunately you don't you don't have the chance to tell often the stories um you know I I kind of and to bring it back to bruce right um my son had never watched bruce on broadway and this past weekend we were going through it and um, we got to The Wish and he said, how have I never heard this song? This is one of the greatest songs ever. And um, and and I was thinking of like uh, all the things and the stories that, that Guitar brought us, right? And um, I guess the same way all the stories, the things that you're writing has brought to you um and he's got to be at least uh, I know he is not your main influence. You have shared with that in the past about there have been people that have been your rabbi, your mentor. But it's got to feel good that the guy um said, "Hey, kid, you did okay."
0: Yeah, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a huge deal. Um and I, you know, I don't I I frankly don't like I don't Pay any attention to the criticism, so that means you frankly can't pay any attention to um, the accolades that somebody right. lays at your feet either. Um, but um, that's, that's one that I'm going to be you know, – I'll be telling people about in 20 years.
1: Absolutely. It should be. Um, very nice. Um, I, it may be time to take him out. So um, and, and we he's, um, <laughs> he's, he's
0: insistent. Yes.
1: Well we have been talking an hour, so I'm going to use that as a sign that we might wrap the, it up. That's, though, that's
0: the warning that's the warning bell.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: though as always, I could just keep talking to you over and over again and I'm sure we will talk again. Um if any final thoughts you want to share?
0: Um just that I would uh you know, since we um since we got together to to talk about uh, Denny on this one, I would um, I would urge people who um, maybe aren't familiar with his stuff um, to go read some of that some of that Green Lantern Green Arrow. Uh, I know they've made some of those issues available for free. Yes, I saw on, that on the DC Comics site. Um, uh, you know, it's look they they are uh, to a certain extent um, time capsules. These are stories that. You know, we're, we're created 50 years ago, so you have to keep that in mind. But still, uh, powerful stories, beautiful art. Um, that's one of the best guys doing his thing at the, at the height of his powers. So, um, Denny's, um, Denny's Batman, Denny's Green Lantern, Green Arrow, um, and definitely the question. Um, you're gonna, you know, you're, it's gonna be time well spent.
1: Very nice. Uh, and how about yourself? What are you working on? And how can someone reach you if they want to? Um.
0: Uh. My website is ronmars.com. Needs to be. Uh, needs to be updated. Uh. Twitter is at Ron Mars. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff coming out in the next few months that I can't talk about yet. So you'll, okay. you'll, ultimately, you'll have to have me back, and then I can announce all this stuff.
1: That sounds great. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Ron, I appreciate your thoughts about Denny sharing about where we are with the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. And Bruce, as always, you are a great guest and you are a wonderful person. And I cannot wait. Um, to in the um, either near or soon to be near future, where we will get to meet each other at a convention and um, share a, a hug, and, and we'll get to discuss some stuff in
0: person. Uh, that sounds awesome. Uh, I think that's that's on our horizon. I don't think we know when, but um, you know, we'll we'll get there if we behave ourselves. So you stay safe. Everybody else stay safe.
1: And same thing, listeners, thank you so much. You have a great night, and we will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast. That is the one, the only, said listening Bruce. Seth and bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Setless and bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.